Hello and welcome to Comedy in the Nutshell, the podcast with me, your host, Mark Decano, where I get to talk to the people in comedy and have them wax lyrical on the ups and downs and ins and outs of comedy. Sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's serious, sometimes it's a little flirty, but it always leads to one ultimate aim. How would they sum up comedy in a nutshell? You can find out more about my journey in comedy fandom on my website, thecomedynerd.com. I love talking to the people in comedy about comedy. If you like to hear what they have to say as much as I do, then please like, subscribe, rate, review and share the podcast. Thank you. My guest this episode is an English-Egyptian comedian whose quirky, fun and joyous comedy took her to the Funny Women Awards semi-finals in 2023. She's an energetic performer who's a joy to watch. To quote comedian Sean Walsh, Farah Sharp is very funny. It's stand-up comedian Farah Sharp. Let's begin. Go for it. <laughs> So why don't we wind back the clock and you tell me how comedy sort of entered your life? How did you first become aware of it? Well, I think like a lot of people, I'd like watched a lot of comedy on TV as a when I was growing up, like with my family and just generally in life. I'd seen, yeah, panel shows and stand up specials on TV, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, I never, ever, ever thought that I would do it. Never. Um, <laughs> I uh, I never thought of it as a, like, I don't know, never thought of it as part of my own life trajectory. Right. Um, but I always um, have loved, you know, attention. <laughs> and I've, uh, I've always liked, um, I've liked performing. Like I used to do a lot of music. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to try like do lots of school plays and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so I loved performing in general. I just never like clocked comedy um, until uh, I set up an open mic with one of my friends um, after university mm-hmm. and we wanted to do it so that we had somewhere to perform songs. Basically, I was into like musical theatre and just general like singing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we set up an open mic with the excuse that we were going to sing at it uh basically like that was the intention for it um and then we started getting like comedians before asking to perform at our night right and the more i sort of started to see you know people who were who were like me doing stand-up it sort of became accessible because i'd never seen the intermediate steps before i've only seen like i'd only seen the top of their game tv uh, comedians and I had mm. no understanding of closing the gap so I guess once I started to see people who were like you know beginners or intermediate people working on their craft it became like a bit more of a a path that seemed understandable and mm. then I sort of realized that I always preferred performing like comedic things so when I was singing or when I was doing musical theater or plays or something I always liked the funny characters and the funny songs the most yeah so I don't know I was just like I guess I could just cut out the music and see what that's like (laughs) um and I liked it I liked it a lot and yeah the cutting out of the music hasn't fully lasted but like it's I'd say comedy has become the the main thing and music has definitely become a much more dialed down aspect of how I like to perform yeah you didn't think about integrating the music and the comedy as a oh, musical yeah. comedian and that would be the focus oh yeah i uh i have th- i have thought about that and in fact when i first started i told myself i'll do stand up just to understand how like jokes work yeah. and then eventually i will bring the music back and be a musical comedian um I've, i haven't st- i guess i've never fully decided that i've cracked jokes yet um, <laughs> <laughs> but I I, ha- I did do some musical comedy um, with two of my friends. Actually, one of them is my partner. Um, we did a we did a trio of musical comedy together, which started out as a podcast, and then we just um, wrote songs together and performed them together, which was a lot of fun. I really loved mm. that. Um, and I still, in my mind, have a plan that I'm going to be writing comedy musicals, like a musical <laughs> theater, a funny musical theater show. Uh, which I've actually started one, but yeah, it's still in the works. Yeah. Um. So it's not like gone. It's more like I have just shifted my focus for a while. And then eventually I do intend to go back to my roots. <laughs> when you made that decision to to do stand-up comedy, was it mm. everything that you anticipated from what you'd seen? <laughs> <laughs> um. No, I don't. Well, I mean, I was absolutely terrified. Like I was honestly 
quaking in my little boots. It was <laughs> terrifying. Like, I, I don't know. I, I can't actually remember the moment where I fully like decided like, okay, that's it. I'm signing up to some, to some open mics. Cause I, I decided not to perform at my own open mic first. I was like, I can't do this in case it's an absolute travesty and I can never show my face there again. <laughs> so I signed up to other open mics around London mm-hmm. and um, I signed up for multiple before I started. Like I didn't just book one in, I booked like maybe three or four open mics in over the space of a few weeks. Yeah. Um, and the day of my first one, I remember being at work at my day job and just getting absolutely nothing done. Like I felt like I was going to vomit all over my laptop <laughs> all, all the way through the day. I was so scared. I couldn't think about anything else. I was absolutely terrified um and then I went and did it and I think I had like just you know a five minute um bring a spot mm-hmm. I had one of my friends also um mm-hmm. and me and my friend went to this uh went to this open mic and I went and did my five minute spot <laughs> and I think I lasted for two minutes I think I <laughs> what I understood five minutes of talking to be only lasted for two minutes um <laughs> i guess i in my brain thought that there was going to be three minutes worth of laughing i don't really know um, <laughs> and uh so but it went well yeah. in the sense of you know i spoke as confidently as i could and i did my best to be engaging but it was like if i look i've still got the video i think actually i'm not sure if i videoed it but i've got some of these early videos and they're yeah. obviously terrible um but you know, it was a success in that I felt compelled to do more. I was like, oh, well, uh, now that I've tried it, I have to get good at this. I need to keep going until I've cracked it, which obviously I still haven't done, but I, I'm going to keep going until I crack it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's incredibly addictive. Um, so, yeah, and then I had all these open mic spots still left to do. There was no option of chickening out in my mind. I was like, I've already committed to it. Um, so I did multiple and then even within the space of four or five gigs, I noticed like, oh, you can like see improvement the more you do. Hmm. So I'll just do loads of this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, that that was it. That's an interesting point you said about, oh, after doing that first show, that you had to do it again to get better. It's not like that you loved it and you caught the bug. It was just that, oh, immediately I have to see improvement. Is that... <laughs> Is that how it was? Is that, did you, you oh, didn't get oh it? Oh gosh, I feel like we've really instantly dug into a core part of my personality here, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Farah, do you feel like you have to perfect everything you try? No, Mark, yeah. no, that's completely. Where do you get that from? Yeah, I know. I did love it. Um, I, I loved it, yeah. but. It was terrifying. So it's not like it was pure, like unfiltered happiness. It was more like. <laughs> It was more like terror that had some addictive highs mixed in. So uh, (laughs) it was just like, it was also, it was like nothing else I'd ever done because even though for other types of performing I'd done before, like music and stuff, Mm. it was like, I'd got nervous for those before, but there's no sense of that instant, instant sense of whether you're like doing well or not. Like there's no feedback that you can, I mean, you can tell if an audience is enjoying you when you're performing those other things, but it's not like so in your face, like either they're laughing or they're not Mm. like it is in comedy. So uh, I don't know. It's just like the thrill of that being like, okay, well, I'm going to find out in about two seconds if they like this. Um, uh, It's just, yeah, (laughs) it's instant payoff for someone who's really, really impatient, basically. So I love that. (laughs) That sort of anxiety. Do you still get that now? You've been doing comedy five years is that fair uh yeah about, about five. uh four four to five years yeah, yeah. i'm probably into my approaching number five yeah. yeah um do i still get that no i i i don't get nervous in the same way anymore um mm. i i mean i guess i do get nervous for like you know something maybe particularly important if i'm doing a a show and i know that there's someone key in the audience mm. or like it's a bigger venue than I've ever done before or something like that I'll still get a bit nervous but it's not nervous in the same way that I used to be nervous like at the beginning it was like just like pure terror I don't even know <laughs> how to describe it other than like absolute terror um whereas now it's more like 
you know, nerves in the sense of, oh, this matters. Like I need to do my best. This has to go well. Like it's more, it's more like, um, I don't know if it's rational. I guess like it's more like it seems more rational in the sense that I know that there's purpose to these worries and there's like reason behind them. Whereas before it was just like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it's just like changed a bit. And also like, yeah, for just general gigging of gigs that I do regularly, I I don't feel nervous at all. I, I'd say I'm just completely dead inside. Um, <laughs> but that leaves the space for it to actually be fun. I'd say like, well, all of it's fun, but there's yeah there's there's space for it to be fun without terror as well when you start getting into it yeah <laughs> just in these first few minutes of talking you said a few things like you know, i'm still working on doing the jokes right and things like that at what point if at all did you start calling yourself a comedian um i say that yeah that's interesting i i feel <laughs> like i i I don't know when you can properly, everyone probably has a different answer for when to call yourself a comedian. <laughs> um, I think I probably started calling myself a comedian when I, I guess, started to get paid gigs. Um, I feel like as soon as I got to the point that was like, oh, people are willing to spend money on hearing my silly little thoughts. <laughs> that means that maybe I'm a comedian or I'm on my way into this career. Yeah. Um, so that's probably when I started saying I'm a comedian, but I still, yeah, I still a hundred percent think I'm a work in progress. Like I'm an under no illusion that <laughs> I have completely nailed this yet. Like the whole concept of writing jokes or writing bits to me is like this, this huge task and topic that honestly is like quite existential. And, <laughs> and, um, and so I think that I'm, constantly trying to improve that as I'm sure all all comedians are thinking about that in some level um yeah it, I think it's a work in progress probably forever <laughs> yeah what about um the things that you like to talk about did you go in knowing about the mechanics of the joke and I have to think of something that's funny or did you go in with thinking you can talk about yourself, you talk about relationships, that sort of thing. Did you know from the outset that's what I want to talk about? What, from like when I began comedy? Yeah, I mean, how did that change from day one to over time? Yeah. How much uh, were you focused on the one thing over another? Um, when I first began, I was just, I think that I thought, wow, I've got millions of ideas that are like comedy ideas. Yeah. I thought like almost every interaction I had with people was freaking hilarious. <laughs> I... Uh, <laughs> I was like, well, I can talk about when that person said this to me. I can talk about when that happened. That's all hilarious. Um, but then obviously you start to learn that just something that's like a funny anecdote mm. isn't the same as like an actual bit with jokes. Um, and so I guess I've become a bit more selective over time. Mm. And now most of the time I've almost become too critical. I think that's what I find myself um catching myself being like eliminating ideas before I've actually developed them because I'm like well it's not a joke uh <laughs> but it's not a joke yet because I haven't written a joke yet about yeah. it but yeah now it's still I still find that most of my inspiration comes from things that have happened to me weird situations awkward moments um and then I try and like flesh them out and actually write around it rather than just expecting the story itself to be <laughs> funny which it's not always. <laughs> <laughs> is there like heavy subjects or, you know, some of the big topics that a lot of which is kind of on vogue at the moment that you want to address that you've chosen specifically not to yet? Uh, I, um, I guess I've had a few uh, jokes um, that touch upon things like, I don't know, race or being a woman mm -hmm. or like any of these kind of topics yeah. um but I think that I'm realizing over time and maybe this will change in future like you never know where you're you're gonna want to go but currently my feelings are gosh I really just want to talk about something that's just absolutely light-hearted yeah. and I, I I want to focus on the like mundane everyday life type jokes rather than trying to answer any big questions or like I don't know I think that there obviously there's some great comedy that comes from these like big I don't know political or like 
I don't know, ethical topics and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And that's great. But I personally am drawn to just messing around. <laughs> I just, I just, I just want to talk about nothingness and just make fun of nothing. You know, <laughs> like I just want it to be, I don't want anyone to learn anything from me. <laughs> I, want, I don't want this to be an educational experience. I just want it to be jokes and fun right now. Maybe there'll come a point later on where I feel like, cool, now is the time for me to tackle some of these things. I want to make a statement. I want to make a point. Yeah. Um, but I think that there's currently people doing that that are doing it so well. And I just don't feel like I... I'm in the place where I want to do that at the moment. I don't know if I, I think you have to be really skilled to talk about some of those really heavy topics. And I think I've still got a lot of learning to do mm -hmm. in order to really deliver those topics well. And also, yeah, it's just not what I want to do at the moment because there's so much horrible stuff happening in the world right now mm. that I'm a bit like, well, I'd rather just focus on like stuff that doesn't matter. <laughs> That's what that's what I want to, I just want to be distracted by the stuff that's small. That's what I want to do at the moment. Yeah, but that's interesting. Again, uh, in many of these conversations, we talk about making light of the heavy things and making heavy uh, light things, which is obviously the approach that you're taking. But it's interesting about distracting yourself. Obviously, an audience might go to be distracted. Yeah. But you're saying that you're using it to distract yourself as much as the audience. Is that the case? Yeah, I think so. I think all of the, you keep, okay, first of all, <laughs> you keep absolutely drawing into core aspects of my personality, Mark, and it is dairy. <laughs> I'm sorry, I do have a GCSE in psychology. <laughs> oh, wow, that is really coming into its own. You're like, Sarah, let me, tell me about your childhood. I, um, yeah, I think it is to distract myself as much as anyone else. Like, I think, well, I think that when I'm just talking to people in day-to-day -day life, I... I hear a thirst for talking about things that don't matter from a lot of people because there's so much to worry about in life yeah. that I think people like love that. So it is for the audience, but also it's for me because if, you, if you're going to talk about these things, you need to think about them a lot. You need to think about them deeply. You need to, like, in order to write enough about it, you need to have spent a lot of time thinking about it. And, and like, I don't know, I, I'm, I feel like, I'd like to be distracted from some of the stresses of life and stresses of the world just as much as anyone else. So I don't really want to sit in a room on my own and think about how awful certain <laughs> things are. <laughs> Writing is hard enough without setting yourself into a misery hole. Like, you know, I, um, that's, I don't know. That, that's just where I'm at at the moment. Yeah. At the risk of diving deeper into your personality, the person that we see on stage, is that 100% you or is it a character of you? Have you dialing aspects up to 11 or something like that? I think it is a, an aspect of me, yeah. I think that, for example, if my friends came and watched my shows, mm -hmm. they would recognise the person that's on stage. Yeah, They would be like, yeah, that's the kind of things that Farah might joke about or say in life as well mm -hmm. but it's not obviously it's not all of who I am um so I uh, yeah like I, I don't I think that it's yeah it's like a dialed up like if I've taken the most sort of extroverted mad parts of myself mm. and that is that is what I put on to stage yeah I think the maddest bits are the best bits <laughs> <laughs> the best bits for stand up anyway <laughs> Well, let's talk a little bit about your festival experience. Mm -hmm. You're no stranger to The Fringe. Yeah. You've been there many times. And I know you've done split bills for some other great comedians. Mm -hmm. How is your festival experience? How is it putting on a show there, seeing other shows? How does it all work for you? Um, yeah, I I have had some great festival experiences. I've, 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 yeah, I've done Edinburgh. I've done the Brighton Fringe multiple times. Mm -hmm. I'm in the process of... Um, applying and setting up a solo a solo work in progress to take to various festivals around the country this year so mm -hmm. um yeah i am throwing myself into it i think that it's really useful um to get the to get into these festivals sometimes because um for example in edinburgh you can you know test out your material every day for yeah. extended periods of time and there's plenty of people that have come come to Edinburgh specifically to watch comedy or theatre or shows in general. So like, mm -hmm. whereas if you were just, for example, putting on as many shows as you would do at the Edinburgh Fringe, but just sort of in your town, 
if you tried to put like a week's worth of Farah, Farah's thoughts for a week, <laughs> I don't know. It might be slightly harder to um, to generate the same level of audience simply because that there aren't as many people specifically there to go and see shows. Mm. Um, so it's really useful for that. It is obviously also, it comes with its drawbacks. Like it's very expensive to go to Edinburgh. So the other festivals around the country are expensive too in their own ways. Sometimes, you, you know, if you've got registration fees and you've got to market your show and obviously travel to wherever it is, sometimes stay overnight. Mm -hmm. it, it really isn't a cheap thing to decide to do. <laughs> um, you've got to make a decision on the trade-off between what you'll gain out of it versus what you've got to put into it. Mm. Um, but I think it's, it's really really useful for your own show and it's also as you say you can go and watch loads of other comedy shows or theater whatever you're into yeah. there's so much on at these festivals that it's a very inspiring time and a very exhausting time <laughs> it's, a, it's a good way to like fill your brain with exciting tingly sensations and then uh need a long sleep afterwards <laughs> <laughs> so wait if you're watching other comedians do you do you watch them as a comedian do you just sit back and laugh or do you have to analyse where they're going and what they're doing? I think I try to just sit back and laugh, but I think there's there's now a part of me that can't fully do that <laughs> with stand-up anymore. Mm -hmm. I think that there's there's an element of the magic that is lost forever. I've seen behind the curtain and uh, I know too much. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen how you have to go about to build these jokes. I've seen um, the amount of work that goes in. Like I can't not now sort of analyze what they've gone for or what types of jokes they're using or uh, how they've delivered it and did it land. And, oh, that's interesting that they decided to do that. Like I can't not think like that to some level. Mm -hmm. Um it's yeah it's interesting but like i i love to go and see comedy yeah. um but it is a it's a it's not necessarily how i would choose to spend my completely free time anymore like i feel like in the past maybe i would have decided you know oh it's my birthday i'll go and see a like a nice uh comedy show or something mm. now i'll be doing something that's nothing to do with comedy <laughs> on my birthday <laughs> If I go to the comedy, I'll enjoy it, but it will be like partly a research uh, right. venture. <laughs> <laughs> is that exclusively for stand-up? That, does that translate to, you know, I won't watch a sitcom on television, I won't go and see a, a humorous play? Uh, I think it, it translates slightly less when mm. it's not stand-up. Like, I do still watch sitcoms for fun. I do still go to funny shows. I still analyze to some yeah. level because I have aspirations to script write myself. Of course. So I can't help but try and absorb some of it. But it's it's less purely analytical than when I see stand up, I think, because I've spent more most of my time doing stand up at the moment. So Yeah. What about the uh, the competitive side of it? Um like if you're doing your fringe show, for example, you're competing with thousands of other shows, uh, hundreds of other stand-up shows. How do you deal with uh, competing with all those other shows for audiences' attention? Uh, with an existential crisis, Mark. <laughs> uh, <laughs> of course. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, I wish I had some really slick answer about like, well, obviously you can deal with it like this. Um, <laughs> but I think that it just makes you constantly... I'd say I oscillate between a state of like, oh, God, why did I think I could do this? What have I got to say? Why would anyone want to come and listen to me? This is terrible. Ah! To then the other end of the spectrum being like, I am hilarious. Like, <laughs> this is going to be, people are going to be lapping this up. Um, and, and I don't think I've settle on one end or the other for longer than I don't know 20 minutes <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm just ping-ponging backwards and forwards um you know uh, yeah that's that's the way I cope with it does that sound healthy does that sound good <laughs> my job is to find out where you're at not to cure you <laughs> okay <laughs> we are we ask the questions and we don't answer them no, good uh, I yeah I'm the philosopher <laughs> I don't answer questions I just ask them <laughs> 
Well, there's, there's an aspect then. If you're doing fringe shows that are split bills, mm. you are in company. Or if you're doing spots, again, in company, does that offer you uh, security? Does that make it more comfortable to do shows if it's a shared experience? Uh, yeah, in a lot of ways it is. Uh, especially, yeah, split bills, I feel like it's has been a really positive thing in my experience. I've always hmm. been lucky enough to partner with great comedians who are really nice people and we mm-hmm. get on well and then we are in the thick of it together the flyering, the the crises, the <laughs> the worrying if any audience is going to turn up. Like, it's nice to have a teammate for that. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I, I I as I'm as I say I'm doing my first attempt at a solo this year, and yep. I am slightly scared for how that's going to feel on my own. Um, mm. It will be interesting as as my first experience of that to wonder what it's like when all the pressure is on me i like the fact that there's someone else sometimes people are like oh is there competition in a split bill of like who's gonna come off better or whatever which i just Mm -hmm. think is not a constructive way to think (laughs) it at all i've never felt that with any of my partners um Mm. i don't hopefully they don't think it either um and I've just I think of it more as a team than like oh and now which of you is gonna go down best like I I, yeah I don't think of it like that yeah I mean you've made a good point there do you enter competitions at all or or, you know how much do you feel like you want to be uh, judged in that sense by others do you see them the same as although you're competing for a title um, you are essentially all in the same boat yeah i i i think competitions can be really useful and obviously like Mm. if you do well in a competition it can be really helpful um to giving you a bit of momentum Mm. um i i've entered a few competitions over the years i definitely tried to enter a lot in my first couple of years um and i i do it a little bit less now but i still i still enter a few of them Mm -hmm. um wherever I am still eligible I'm sort of aging out of some of them now (laughs) um but uh I think that they're useful and it can be nice to have people that you're all in the same boat with Mm. but the sort of downside of these competitions is that because it's inherently competitive Mm. even if you went on stage and had an absolutely amazing gig all the audience laughed in all the places that you hoped for and it seemed really great and you had fun while you were doing it and it was wonderful Mm. and then at the end of the night you find out that you weren't in the you know the top three that go through to the next round or whatever it may be yeah it's just so crushing and it's like well if this wasn't a competition i'd have been so thrilled with that performance yeah but because it's a competition now i feel terrible anyway so like i I don't love that aspect of it, but I think that competitions are kind of inevitable in pretty much every aspect of life. Like there's always something competitive. <laughs> there's there's no art form where there aren't competitions. There's no anything where there aren't competitions and they serve their purpose and they're good and they often motivate you to work hard and improve. And that's definitely, it's definitely been the case for me. I've tried to like work hard on my competition sets in the past, mm-hmm. um, but I don't like the feeling afterwards. Yeah, if you if you don't get the result you wanted, but you had a good gig, it's a bit of a slightly warped experience, a bit weird. Mm. So how was your experience through lockdown then, having started comedy not too long beforehand and then suddenly been denied for a substantial period of time? Uh, how did you go into that? How did you come out of it? What did you do in the meantime? Yeah. Were you able to perform online or in car parks? <laughs> how, did, how did you deal with it? I found that incredibly frustrating because, as you say, I had like, I think I'd been going for about six months. The latter mm. half of 2019, I had been building up my momentum and starting to, I was like, obviously I started just doing like little five minutes sets on open mics but by six months in I had been building up to getting offered longer spots and just Mm -hmm. like generally increasing the amount of gigs that people wanted to book me for and it was quite exciting I was like ah progress is happening and then (laughs) it was just like the end uh that's over that's over now and because I'd been having such an inspiring time like doing my first six months of stand-up and trying to 
gig as much as possible I had all of these like comedic thoughts bubbling over and I was like oh but I could write about this and I could write about that I don't want to stop I know I'll use this pandemic to write loads of great new material um mm-hmm. and so I I signed up for various uh zoom gigs um mm-hmm. which I I did and I I can't <laughs> I can't say anything else other than that I did them. Uh, I, I did some of them and I didn't enjoy them because, well, why would you? Uh, it's just like saying jokes while looking at your own face uh, while no one laughs because they're all on mute and probably not even at their laptop. Maybe they're off making a cup of tea while you talk at your own face on Zoom. It's just, it was terrible. And you couldn't you couldn't actually even get a read on your material. Like if you were doing new material, like I, for some reason, thought I was going to do over the pandemic, I was like, I'll write stuff and then I'll test it on Zoom. And it's like, I'd come away from the gig being like, well, I don't know. I know that my wall liked it. <laughs> Nothing about it was useful to me, I felt. Mm. And um, I... I don't know, after a while I stopped do. I mean, I, there was appetite for them at the beginning, I think. Even people to watch them, there was appetite at the start because it was, like, novel and interesting to mm. see what it would be like. But after a while, I think we all got sick of it um, and I stopped doing it as much. And as I stopped doing it, my sort of inspiration levels for writing things also dwindled until by the end of the pandemic, I was like, what is comedy? What are thoughts? <laughs> Who am I? Uh, and it was just like, and, and, and I have to say that the stuff that I did write at the beginning of the pandemic, when I was still feeling inspired, was so weird. Like it was clear that I had no social contact for a while. I remember doing like a five minute or maybe at the time, yeah, about five minutes on Zoom, purely about why there are, there should or should not be egg flavored crisps. And I don't know, it it was really, it was not great. Um, I, I don't know, it wasn't good. And then, so then when we, we finally got to the point where things were opening up and gigs could happen again. And yeah. the gigs were weird, by the way, because um, there was smaller audiences that were all spread out. Also, there was this fun ritual of having to wipe down the microphone between every performer just to really kill the momentum. So it was very strange. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad we could do it. At least we could be in person, but it was weird. Yeah. Um, and I started doing those and I was like, wow, I suck. Like I started, <laughs> and I was like, I all of the sort of progress that I felt like I'd made in that first six months, mm. it just felt like I was starting from scratch again. Well, I mean, not total scratch, but basically from scratch. And uh, I think that it it took me a while to feel like I was getting back into it because, yeah, I mean, I I looking at the time I thought wow I've done six months like that's great I'm I'm like a freaking intermediate now when I look back I'm like Farrah you barely begun anyway <laughs> it's not like you lost that much progress but yeah it was um it was hard to get back into it it was it was quite hard well from being locked down to traveling far and wide mm-hmm. so you've toured the UK you've played abroad how do you find uh, regional or international differences in approaches to humor and approaches to your material? Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's I'm still figuring it out because, well, in terms of abroad, the only times I've gigged abroad was I did it in Australia a yeah. few years ago. And so I did really notice a difference in sense of humor there. Yeah. Um, just the types of jokes being made by the comics as well as like how my jokes were received. It just felt like a slightly different comedy scene. So I was kind of figuring it out while I was there. I, I don't know. It was, it was quite hard to adapt, especially as I was only doing it for a short period of time. So I think mm. I would love to go and do that again yeah. now that I've got more experience as well, because I was still very early into comedy when I did that. Um, and in terms of around the UK, yeah, there is a bit of a different sense um, depending on where you gig and also like who the audience is because, mm-hmm. yeah, different parts of the country have different cultures and it's always interesting to me to see how it goes. And there are certain places where I've gone to gig and I'm like, 
wow, they love me out here. This is great. I should move here. <laughs> I'd be I'd be freaking on TV all the time in this place. Um <laughs> Uh, which is probably a very warped perspective of what was essentially just one good gig. Um, and then uh, other times I'll be like, oh, my God, I can never show my face in this city again. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. The thing is, there are so many variables, right, for what makes a good gig that it's quite hard to boil it down to purely the location because, mm. you know, the the the, the the size and shape of the room and the height of the ceiling and how warm it is and who actually turned up that day and what kind of a day they had <laughs> is so much of a variable too that mm. ha- like how do you actually it's like starting to get technical but how do you actually distill why your gig went well or didn't go well mm. um it's like there's so many variables that you have to just kind of do a lot to get a sense of the trend so like i think i'll need to do <laughs> a lot more gigging in a lot more places before I can tell, you know, really where I belong. <laughs> <laughs> well, in terms of where you belong, not only have you done your split bills and you've done spots and obviously you're working now on the solo show, but also you MC, you've got your own nights or pint size. Where are you more comfortable at the moment? Doing longer pieces, doing spots or running the night? Good question. I um I actually really like both both like doing sets and like you know actual like a set of stand-up versus I really like doing emceeing too but they are quite different um Mm. I like I like the sort of creative complexity that I can build into a set I like the fact that because I know that the set is going to be this long and that hopefully no one's going to interrupt me and I (laughs) I can I can play with the audience's attention and stuff I can build in my callbacks or I can decide to weave this in there and like I really like the sort of intricacy that you can try and build up in that and I think Mm. that's really fun um whereas emceeing um you obviously can do bits of material in your emceeing but it's it's a bit more like difficult to have like that level of complexity because you don't have time to necessarily build in enough pre-work to then do a callback all in one set so then you've got to wonder like oh will the audience still remember that by the time I next come on stage could I do a callback then or will they have just forgotten (laughs) what I'm talking about so it's a bit more like you you have to let go of some of that and just go for like shorter simpler bits for emceeing in my experience anyway Hmm. and so I but I I love the the spontaneity and the fact that you can chat to the audience a bit more and like I love doing like bits and pieces of crowd work and chatting to people. And I think it's like almost a a related but separate skill set that I want to practice to get really good at too. I think that when I've done a lot of sets, I feel very rusty when I go on an MC. And if I've done a lot of MCing, then and I suddenly have a set, I'm like, God, it's like I've never performed before, but it's like I have been gigging. It's just a completely different type of gigging. And so I really like to have a mixture of both to try and yeah to try and keep it spicy and in terms of that spontaneity do you build into material moments for improvisation for what's in happens in the room to change Mm. and alter uh your your set when i'm doing what just like a in normal like sets of stand-up do i build that in yeah um a little bit like there are moments where i might ask a question to the audience or something like that it's something that i'd like to get a bit better at but the thing is I like the fact that it's slightly open-ended when I MC. Like, I kind of love the challenge of not having a clue about what they're going to say and then having to just go with it and, like, make yeah. something up. Whereas when you're doing a set, right, you you probably know where you want to end up. You know what joke needs to come next, and you don't want to just be like, okay, changing onto this now with yeah. no seamless, like... so. It's a bit harder, I think, to work in good crowd work to a set that doesn't just then completely derail your whole, especially if you've got limited time. I don't know. I That's something I'd still like to to get better at. Yeah. It's interesting. I was having a conversation with um, a comic the other night after a show, mm-hmm. and they were talking about the crowd work they were doing. And this guy started rambling, and then he sort of said, oh, yeah, I could tell you the whole story. And I said, you could have just said no. <laughs> I absolutely don't want to hear your story. And then shut yeah. him down. So he was absorbing the energy in the room. So Yeah, if you let them go on for too long. Yeah. yeah. 
So it doesn't give you what you want, like you're looking for where you want to go. And as you said, if it takes you in an opposite direction, you could just destroy everything you've built up to. Exactly. And that's, <laughs> there's a real skill and art into getting people to say those juicy nuggets that you want them that will give you something to go off that is fun yeah. versus digging for so long with no useful thing that they've said that it's mm. actually just become really boring. It's just become an interrogation of them telling you things and you're like, yeah, that's terrible. Let's, let's try another question. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't want to do that for too long and you don't want to let them talk for too long because it's just, yeah, it just sucks the energy. Yeah. You've got to be able to and like, yeah, I've, I've fallen in that rabbit hole before. And <laughs> I think that it's a, uh, it's a it's a skill that needs flexing of figuring out how to like cut it off as well when they when they do go on for too long because obviously it's not the audience's responsibility to figure out how to be engaging in that moment it's your mm. responsibility to to manage the situation so yeah that's <laughs> it's tricky well in in the sense of um learning and discovering how to do material and knowing where to go do you when you're doing these collaborations these split bills which you said about it's for team effort mm. did you post show analyze with each other about what worked what didn't work do you look for those kinds of feedback um depending on the split bill we've we have sometimes done that and it yeah. depends on the, yeah it depends what whether both of you want to do that or whether you're just trying to like you know do your best stuff and see what happens yeah um but yeah i have been in the situation where we've um after the show we've like made notes on each other's sets and we've uh told each other like i love when you do this or when you put on that silly voice it got more of a response than when you did it the other day especially if you can you do multiple performances of that show mm. and then you can see like the slight variations in how the other person said it this day versus that day and you can be like actually i really liked when you did it like that versus this and yeah. it's quite nice to get technical with that and i love i think it's really like actually kind of important to have some comedians that you see and gig with and write with and everything regularly because that's when you start to be able to get actually detailed feedback mm. because if you are asking people that you don't gig with very often or that just you know you don't know that well they might just be nice and say oh that was great yeah you did really <laughs> well which isn't that useful yeah um or, the, I mean, I've never had this, but maybe they'll just be <laughs> horrible to you. <laughs> um, so, like, you really need, like, some comics. And I think it takes time to find the people that actually, like, work well with you. But mm. especially as comedy is such a, like, stand-up is often a very solo, individual and kind of lonely thing to do. Mm. And if you're just alone with your thoughts and you're just the only one looking at what you've been doing and analyzing yourself, it's quite hard to sometimes identify what it is that you do when you go on stage or what it is that you keep doing when you write. And mm. so I think it's really useful to sort of form a team, even though you don't gig always as a team or anything like that, but form a team and commit to helping each other and reviewing each other like I have a, a group that I write with regularly I have several comedians that I often meet up with to write with and we test ideas with each other and mm -hmm. we uh can and then when you do it regularly as well that's when you can start going oh that bit's a lot like that other bit that you've written maybe you could link them together or maybe that plays nicely into your persona and mm -hmm. um that's the that's I think where the real like juicy juice of getting into it comes from uh is that the technical term yeah the juicy juice of comedy <laughs> that's where the juicy juice is um yeah. yeah and I think that's where the magic starts to happen yeah do you keep jokes in even though collaborators have said you need to cut that or you didn't get the audience response you were hoping for do you keep them in anyway for your own amusement uh it depends it depends whether that person has seen it multiple times because if they just saw it that day mm. and it bombed that day I would kind of discard that if I was confident that it was working in general mm. I don't know if I was on the fence about a bit and I was like mm, I don't know sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't and then they go I don't really think that's good uh <laughs> I might yeah I might get rid of it or I might be like well how can we make it better which is I think often the way you should go because mm. If something made you laugh or you found something funny in the first place, then there must be a way. I do believe there must be a way to make everything funny <laughs> somehow. Um, but it can be really hard to find that way. 
um what has so far been your best and worst experiences in comedy broadly Mm. um best experiences are just the absolute adrenaline and fire of doing a gig that goes well and like coming off stage and being like yeah that was great (laughs) and I didn't make any mistakes and they laughed and they liked it yay that was really good and that (laughs) you know that is kind of the the best thing about it in my mind and like mm-hmm. and when when you can come off stage and and the other comedians are like yeah well done as well and you're like good it's not just the fact that i've like deluded myself into <laughs> thinking that this went well like no we all agree this went well great so that's really nice um and when audience members come up to you afterwards and they're like I really love this bit this bit's exactly what happens in my life oh I've had this before that reminds me of my friend oh I love that I think it's so nice when people really relate to what you've talked about Mm. um so that that really makes me happy when you're like oh that bit that bit really spoke to me that's really fun worst moments is when you go on stage and you're booked to do a set that may be, I don't know, 10, 20 minutes long. And you say your first joke and your first joke, you know, it's reliable. You usually say a reliable first joke yeah. and you say your first joke and it gets almost nothing. <laughs> and you're like, oh, no, this is a good <laughs> forecast for how this whole set <laughs> is going to go. And you're up there and you're like, they hate it. They hate me. And I have to stand here and keep going because I've been booked for this long. So I'm going to keep going. And all of us hate it, including me. I'd like it to stop. You'd like it to stop. It's not going to stop. It's going to keep going. (laughs) We're all suffering. Uh, I've got to deliver it like I want to be there, even though I don't. So then people are pitying you like, God, she really thinks this is funny. And she's she's really not getting a response. And I'm like, it's horrific. (laughs) And then you come off stage and you're like, wow. I know that I bombed. And then you catch the eye of the other comedians and they all look at the floor and everyone's yeah. like, oh God, I can't even, I can't, like, you know, when you've done really badly, when people can't even look at you to be like, no, don't worry, it wasn't that bad. Like when people are like, suddenly they're very interested in their notes yeah. and suddenly they're all like, no, that really did go badly. That was terrible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then that's when you that's when you gather up your stuff and leave instantly without speaking to anyone. Like, I will just go home and think about what I've done. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's the worst. Another worst. I actually have two worsts. Okay. That's one of my worsts. And my other worst is when you've had writer's block mm. for often weeks, if not months. And you're like, I haven't written new material for months and I haven't had anything that has even sparked joy enough to like, I can't even consider it to be material. Like I've tried, I've sat down at my desk and I can't write anything. What are jokes? Who am I and why am I here? And uh, that's a really tough feeling as well. Yeah. So if anyone's out there thinking about doing comedy, uh, be ready to feel existential. That's I'd say, yeah, Yeah. that's a theme. (laughs) Well, we have a show title. Mm Existential dread with Farrah Sharp. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, given that, then, what are the most important lessons that you've learned? What are your philosophies? Uh, good question again. Thank you. Very good questions. <laughs> well done, you. <laughs> Almost like you've been doing this for a while and you've learned how to make a really good podcast. That's great. Um, Thank you. And of course, and of course, your GCSE in psychology, did you yeah. say? That's, that's, yeah, that's paying off. My GCSE um, in psychology uh, is telling me you're playing for time. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. Um, okay, so <laughs> things I've learned are that I think that you have to just keep going. Um, because when things are hard or when you've had a bad gig or when you can't write anything... Mm the only thing that's going to make that get better is if you try again and uh you can't and it it, sometimes it feels like futile and it feels really hard Mm. um but the only way yeah the only way that you'll improve the situation is by keeping going and and, uh, trying again and it always turns around at some point 
but you can't uh I, that's my belief anyway i guess mm. there are people out there who go you know what Farrah? it doesn't always get better <laughs> um but i think that if you try really hard you've at least improved the chances that things will get better mm. um and so yeah there's something i obviously have to tell myself at times too when things are hard you have to um persevere and i think that often one one of the lessons that i think i've learned in recent years is there's an element of just like i'm gonna call it delusion i think you have to just think that you're good at this like you have to <laughs> at some point just believe that you are funny you have to believe it because if you don't believe it then no one's gonna believe it you have to believe it so <laughs> you have to be delusional in some like and maybe you're not delusional because maybe you are really funny but when you feel like you're not tell yourself to be delusional and that you are <laughs> So that can be part of, yeah, existentialism <laughs> and be delusional. That's the... <laughs> well, I don't know if it's a, a stand-up set, but it's definitely a textbook in there somewhere. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's definitely a case study for someone, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> it's a clinical case. Um, yeah. No, it's... I think... Well, yeah, I, I'd say that comedy is one of the most um, existential things I've ever done. Uh, so that that is makes sense to me that yeah. that's how i boiled that down <laughs> <laughs> so tell me how we can find out about you and where we can come and see you perform um well i'm on social media so you can find my instagram and tiktok at farah sharp i'm also on facebook um and i have you know links on all of those things about shows that are coming up and I post little videos sometimes, so um, you have some little tidbits to watch. Um, and yeah, I'm going to be doing my first solo show, Work in Progresses, this year. So I'm going to be doing Summer Around London. I'm doing The Pinch of Fault. I'm doing lots of different Work in Progresses around London. I'm going to be at the Brighton Fringe and hopefully more fringes later in the year as well so keep an eye out and come if i am anywhere near where you live <laughs> um and so the final question then Farah, how would you sum up comedy in a nutshell existential <laughs> i think that's how i have to sum it up i think it's existential but it's a it's okay joyous existential it's fun it is fun thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure Thank you very much for having me. This has been very fun.